pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll then get to work. So let's pray. Dear Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you so much for him coming and dying on the cross for our sins, for his resurrection, and it's because of what you've done on our heart, because of the Holy Spirit, and because of what your son has done, that we are now complete in your son, and that we now are righteous because of your son. We now can be obedient and glorify you because of your son. And we thank you that is because of this resurrection power, we have life right now. We're so very thankful for this. I'm very thankful that I have a family, uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord, who see and share the same thing and have the same mind concerning this truth, that your son is risen and that through him and through what he's done on the cross, we can have newness of life. And with that comes then the hope of resurrection ourselves. We just thank you and love you in your son's name. Amen. If we were living back in the olden days, whenever that was, uh, the church would teach that you would have to travel to some special place. And as you traveled to some special place and you said some sort of special prayer to some sort of relic, I think at one time, 14 out of the 12 apostles were buried in Spain, so that was neat. You could go to one of those places, you could see some of that, and the church would say, by doing this you gain some great spiritual benefit. There's some great treasure chest for you in heaven because you saw the bones of one of the apostles. I am so thankful that that is not the case. And I'm so very thankful that our treasure is found in Christ and that all those other things are spiritually bankrupt. Now, before we start saying, well, praise the Lord, I didn't live in the medieval time and I wasn't under that theology, we still do that. Now, it might not be as extreme as going to see one of the 14 out of the 12 apostles that lived in Spain, but we still do stuff like that, right? We have certain rituals, we have certain things that we do, and we think, well, if I just say this ritual, if I just do this thing, hey, I'm peachy keen, right? I get, I get into some sort of jet stream of holiness, and I just got to say it just the right way, and in saying it the right way, looking at it the right way, then all of a sudden I get some sort of spiritual benefit because there's some great spiritual treasure. Once again, I'm very thankful for the Lord Jesus Christ because he is the true treasure. This morning, we're going to look in the book of Philippians chapter 3. We're going to see how Jesus Christ is the true treasure. And friends, as I was thinking about it this morning, I'm not convinced that any of us really struggle on identifying what the treasure is. In fact, if we were to poll everybody as you walked in and say, what's the greatest treasure? I think all of us would say Christ. I think the issue is desiring the right treasure. Our heart desires other things. Our heart desires self-righteousness. The struggle is the right desire. The struggle is being in the word and letting the Holy Spirit work on us so that we desire the right thing. So, in Philippians chapter 3, we're going to look at this great treasure that's found in Christ. And in this great treasure, we're going to see three at least three, 
of these beautiful gems. The first gem that we're going to see, the first great gem of this treasure is knowledge of Christ. You and I can know Christ. That is what's inside of this treasure chest. That's a great spiritual treasure. The second thing is that we're identified with Christ. This is the second gem in this great treasure is identification with Christ. We're going to see that in verses 9 and 10. And then in verse 11, we're going to see the last gem in this great treasure, this great spiritual treasure. It's that we have hope in Christ. Hope of a resurrection ourselves. So, let's go ahead and let's look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. And let's look at this first gem in this great treasure chest. This great spiritual treasure chest. In verse 8, we're going to see... The knowledge of Christ. This is a great gem in the treasure. This is far better than anything else. And notice what the Apostle Paul says in verse 8. More than that. All right, so we got to stop, right? That's an interesting way to start off a verse. More than that. The question is, what's the that? Well, if you go up to verse 7, that's the answer. We talked about this last week. Notice what the Apostle Paul says. Whatever things were gained to me, Now remember, he spent time going through this great spiritual resume, right? I was a Pharisee, I I was obedient to the law, I was blameless, I did this, I did that, I did this, I was circumcised, I'm of this certain family. And so those things were looked at as some sort of spiritual treasure. And the Judaizers looked at those things as something that would get you closer to the Lord. And those things were viewed by some as These are the things that you have to do. And the Apostle Paul is saying, those things at that time, which seemed like a spiritual positive in my spiritual bank account, those things which some may say are important spiritually, those things that that at one time I saw as being good and having gain, notice what he says. He says, those things, those very things that were gained, those things I now have counted as what? As loss, being spiritually bankrupt. Because of Christ. So now the Apostle Paul in verse 8, when he says, now more than that, it's more than this thought. And what's the thought? The thought is, I consider those things to be spiritually bankrupt because of Christ. So now the Apostle is going to say, now if you think that's an incredible statement, if you think that's how you're supposed to believe, it actually goes deeper than that. It's actually a more profound truth. There's actually something uh, more to this in the thinking of the apostle, and there should be this desire that there's more for us, that we should say, yeah, I consider it spiritually bankrupt, but there's something more. That doesn't really quite describe how I view those, those things that at one time were gained. So notice what he says. He says, more than that, I count all things to be a loss. Same word that we saw in verse 7, spiritually bankrupt. So those things are loss in the view of the surpassing value. So imagine the Apostle Paul here has two things. You're in a marketplace, and he goes, you can buy this, not a good deal, especially when you compare it with this. And that word, surpassing value, I, I mean, it's, it's like it doesn't even hold a candle, right? I mean, this, this thing that Paul's about ready to say is far more valuable than those things in the past, And what is that thing that has surpassing value? Uh, He he says this in the Greek. Knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. Now, the Apostle Paul is not talking about the knowledge that Jesus Christ has. 
But it's speaking of his knowledge of Jesus. This is not talking about what he knows about Jesus. This isn't talking about he can fill out Sunday school answers. This doesn't mean that whenever there's a question asked in, in one of our Bible studies, he knows the answer about those things. This is not just a mere intellectual thing. This is an actual knowing of the person. This is an intimate relationship. This is a, this is a friendship. This is a, this is a deep, deep knowing To to know Christ and to have knowledge of Christ is to know how he thinks, to know how he would react, to know what his likes and dislikes are, to know his goals. It's to spend time with him. That's what it means to know Christ. And so for the Apostle Paul, he says, look, you got to realize that for me, all of those things that people say are really important and all of those things that people say have spiritual value, I consider them as spiritual bankruptcy to the fact of having a relationship with Jesus. Knowing Jesus trumps all those other things. Incredible statement. And to be honest, I really wish I could always echo that thought. Right? I really wish I could echo that thought that I really saw all of those spiritual accolades and all of those things that are on my resume, I could say, They're nothing to me to knowing Christ. In fact, the temptation is always for me the other, right? To tell you how great I am, to show you how great I am. I I am willing to email you my resume at the moment's notice just to show you how much stuff I've done. So you give me a round of applause and say, wow, what what a great fella. That's That's not the heart we should have though, right? The heart we should have is, all that stuff is, puts me in spiritual debt. It puts me in spiritual debt because that going after those things and, and relishing who I am based off of my own power actually devalues Christ and actually hurts my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. To him, knowing Jesus is the greatest thing. But then he goes more because he's still under that thought of more than that. Now, I would say that's quite substantial, right? That's a more than that. But then he goes on and he says, For whom, speaking of Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things. There's a little bit of a debate here on the definition of all things. Does Paul mean that as he looks back at his old life, because of Christ, he now considers those things as a loss and that he spent all of his time doing these things and Now they mean nothing, right? Or does Paul mean, because I'm in Christ, I've suffered the loss of everything in my old life? Like, like is he talking about how there's just this complete loss of everything? The question is, which one is it? And I would say it's both. I I don't know how you could say it's one or the other. It, It seems both. That if the Apostle Paul looks at who he was as a Pharisee, if he looks at his heritage, if he looks at all of his obedience and all of his colleagues and all of his ministry and all of his schooling, and he looks at all of that with all of his family, and then he says, now I know Christ and none of this matters, wouldn't his colleagues, wouldn't his family go, you're wrong? And wouldn't they sever relationships with him because of the sake of Christ? 
Wouldn't he lose job? Wouldn't he lose an income? I mean, this man was a professional scholar of the law. By coming out and saying, I now disagree with you, he lost jobs. And you think about this. This was the same man that got a certificate to go to another city to kill people. And by the time he got there, he had met Jesus. By the time he was done in Damascus, they were trying to kill him. And he had to, he had to escape through a window. When Paul says, I lost it all, I think he means, I lost it all. This is the value of Jesus. I am willing to give up everything at any time because of Jesus. Because knowing him is far more valuable than all things. I think that's the heart of the apostle here. Now we would say, well, that's, a, that's quite... That's quite substantial, right? That's a more than that. But then he goes on and he says this. And he says, and count them, that's all things, but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. Um, this word for rubbish, I really thought really hard of how to describe this word. This is not a polite word. It's a little bit of a rude word. Um, so as I was trying to figure out how to describe it, I was actually walking from my house over to the office, and then I go, oh, that's the smell right there. That's the word that's being used here. Now, I, I don't know about you, but I don't get very excited when I smell that smell, and I don't go, man, I wish I could bottle that. And sell that because I think other people will enjoy that. And I don't think many of you like that smell. In fact, I've had to, you know, we've moved outside and I'm saying hi to everybody and bye as you're leaving. And there's been a couple Sundays where it's been really tough to be outside saying hi to you because the cows. So there's a sense that when I smell that, when I think of that, whatever that is over there that the cows uh, leave behind, there's a sense of, I don't like it, I want to get away from it, I want to do everything I possibly can not to smell it, not to see it. I don't want it around me. It's repugnant, right? You don't want to be around it. So Paul, using this word, he says, I count all of those things as rubbish, so think about how you think of cow manure. That is how he thinks of all of the things that he has done in the past. This is not something you collect to give out as gifts. This is something that you try to remove away from you. And he says, I count these things as rubbish so that, here's the reason, that I may gain Christ. Now this is incredibly profound. He not only just considers them spiritually bankrupt... He not only considers them as being low value compared to just knowing Christ, he considers them absolutely repugnant, something that he cannot stand. And the reason he cannot stand it is because the implication is that it is standing in the way of him coming to know Christ. This self-righteousness keeps him from that knowledge of Christ. Now, we would say at the time when Paul's writing this, he already knows Christ. So then it's really interesting that he would say that I may gain Christ. And the question is, what does Paul mean? This is the thought. He has Christ, but he wants more. 
He knows Jesus, but he wants to know more. That's his desire. That's the treasure. And you can't see this treasure until you remove all that self-righteousness. And you can't see all that self-righteousness until the Lord works on your heart. So what's the incredible treasure? Knowing Christ. Having a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is that act where there was that moment where we realized that we were sinners and that we were separated from a holy God. And because of his great love for us, he sent Jesus Christ to come and die on the cross for our sins, to be buried, and then raise again on the third day. And that if I place my trust solely on the person and work of Jesus Christ and him alone, I now know him. I'm now in a relationship with him. And I now can grow in that relationship with him. And I grow in that relationship because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, time in the word, time in prayer. That's how we grow. That's how we get to know our friend is through the word. It's an incredible treasure. Incredible treasure that all of us should be willing to sell the entire world for. Just to know Jesus. And if that was all that the text said, and I didn't know anything else, I would say that is an incredible treasure. But our Heavenly Father likes to give lots of gifts. He doesn't like to just give you one gem. He wants to give you a whole bunch of gems. And now there's this other thing. Notice this other gem that's found here in verses 9 through 10. (laughs) I love it. And he says, and may be found in him. So the apostle Paul realizes that it's all of this self-righteousness keeps him from knowing Christ. It hurts his relationship as a believer. He also realizes that having all of this self-righteousness keeps him from being found in Christ. The question is, what does it mean to be found in Christ? Really what I think this means is it means to be identified with him. I'm in him. When somebody should, the idea is this, is when somebody thinks of a believer, they should see Jesus. They should think of Jesus. It speaks of us being vitally tied to him so that when Christ died, it was as if I died. When Christ rose from the dead, it was as if I rose from the dead. When Christ reigns in the future, I will reign with him. His fate is my fate. I am becoming like Christ. That's what he's doing. I'm being conformed to him. So I'm identified with him. I'm becoming one with him. There's this inseparable union that the believer has with Christ. Paul uses numerous examples to describe this being found in him. Maybe the most profound is that which is found in Ephesians chapter 5. Remember that passage where it talks about husbands and wives, and he's talking about a marriage, and the Apostle Paul goes, the marriage, our earthly marriages, are a picture of a greater reality of our relationship with the Lord. So as we think about marriage and as we would grow closer, as one spouse would grow closer with another, that is a small picture of the greater reality between the believer and the church and Christ. What is the Apostle Paul? What is his great desire? His great desire is to be found in Christ and to continue to look for Christ and continue to 
relish and grow and deepen in this identification in Christ. He wants to become more conformed to Christ. He, he He wants to become like Christ. He wants to understand that union. He wants to have a deeper understanding of that union. So he wants to be found in him. Now, he, he continues to talk about what does this mean, because notice what he says in the next part of verse 9. So, so what does it mean to be found in him? Well, he says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law. So in the Apostle Paul's mind, identification with Christ, this identity that I have in Christ, is not based off of my good deeds that I do apart from the Spirit and apart from God's Word, Right? Anytime that I try to establish myself as a good person, independent of God, independent of the Holy Spirit's work, I'm trying to establish my own righteousness. If I'm trying to establish my own righteousness, I am not fully living out my identity with Jesus Christ. Because I'm trying to establish my own identity. I am righteous by myself. And it is as if you are saying, I can be righteous apart from Christ. And if you can be righteous apart from Christ, do you really need Christ? That's the logic. So the Apostle Paul says, I want to be identified with Christ, not establishing my own. So then how what kind of righteousness does he want? Notice what he says. He says, but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Now, the Apostle Paul, no doubt, is thinking of that great doctrine of justification by faith. Justification by faith is that teaching that the Bible has, that the moment that somebody places their faith in Christ, God removes the punishment, he reconciles the sinner to God, and then credits that one with righteousness. Says, you are now righteous declares them righteous, and then imputes to that one the righteousness of Christ. So that when I stand before God, he sees me with Christ's righteousness, not my own. So the apostle in one hand is thinking of this. I don't want to stand on my own righteousness because there is none. It can't happen. I want to stand on that righteousness which comes on the basis of faith through God. I want divine righteousness. I want to be so identified with him that even the righteousness I have is the righteousness which comes from Christ. In saying that, we also have to realize that the Apostle Paul is writing about his current condition as a believer and his current desire as a believer. So the question is, what does it mean as a believer to have a current desire to have a righteousness which comes by faith, this righteousness which comes by the righteousness of God? Once again, I think the Apostle Paul, in another place, explains this reality. He uses a different metaphor. He uses the metaphor of of fruit. Remember when we talked about the fruit of the Spirit in the book of Galatians? Something is a fruit because it's a product of something, right? It's produced. The Holy Spirit produces those fruits in us. Those are the things that naturally come out. And so as a believer, that's what I want. I want those righteous acts. Those righteous acts come from the Holy Spirit. And as I step out in faith, doing what he asks me to do, not walking into temptation, there is this product of righteousness 
That's what Paul wants. He wants more of that. And to do that means that he understands his identity in Christ because he's becoming more like Christ. This, don't, don't, don't be confused. I'm not saying that the human does nothing. Remember, when we talked about this, I said that there were things that we can do as believers that stunt the growth, that limit the production of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Like we can be habitually in sin and not yielding to the Spirit, and thus the yield is going to be really low. But there's certain things that we can do to cultivate the soil, as it were, spend time in God's Word, spend time in prayer, spend time with other brothers and sisters, uh, using your gifts in the local church, right? All those things. Those things cultivate the ground so that more righteousness is produced. So the Apostle Paul saying, look, I want, I, want right, I want to be righteous, but not a righteousness which comes from my own obedience. I want, to come, I want that righteousness which comes from God on the basis of the Holy Spirit. I want the fruit of the Spirit to be produced. This is a great treasure, right? To be identified with Christ. Now that's what he says in verse 10. That I may know him. Wow, that I may know him. The Apostle Paul, once again, emphasizes the personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the treasure. And all of the gifts that he gives is the treasure. If I'm searching for another treasure, I've missed it. He's the real treasure. And the Apostle Paul says, I want to know him. I want to be identified with him. I want to be like him. Past week, I was thinking of when I was a kid. I um, I really liked baseball. Uh, I really I was never good enough, but I, I always daydreamed, you know, as little kids do, that I would play second base for the Philadelphia Phillies. I love second base. My favorite player was Marlon Anderson. He played for a Phillies farm club, the Reading Phillies. And there's a lot of stuff that you see me doing that actually, as a kid, I learned from Marlon Anderson. The way that the guy held his glove, I did that. While the pitcher was reading the signal, he would yell out certain signals to the outfield. I didn't know what they were, but when I played the Lily, guess what I was doing? I was yelling out the same thing. No one knew what I was talking about, but I was yelling. And, I, and even to this day, when I'm on the field, I'm always yelling something. I don't know. I don't even know why I need to, but I just do it because Marlon Anderson did it. Marlon Anderson, I watched how he'd warm up, you know, as he was in the batter's circle. And then when he would step up into the box, the way he took the box. As a little kid, that's exactly what I did. The way I stood was how Marlon Anderson stood. I, I tried to become a mini Marlon Anderson. That's a really bad example of what the Apostle Paul is doing with the Lord Jesus Christ here. I want to know him. I want to be like him. I I want the things that I say be the things that Christ would say. The way that I react is the way that Christ would react. The things that Christ loves are the things I love. The things that Christ hates are the things I hate. I want to be like Christ. I want to know Christ. It's all Christ. I want to know him. I want to be found in him. I want to be identified with him. When they look at me, I don't want them to see me. I want them to see Christ. And then he makes this statement, which is the reason why I picked this text. Notice the next statement of verse 10. Now, we carry over that word know, because I want to know him, and we carry that over, and we could easily say, and to know the power 
of his resurrection. That's what the Apostle Paul wants. He wants to know that power. He wants to experience that power. Now, a lot of times when we think about experience, we think about some sort of like lightning bolt type of experience. We think about the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. We think about these great, unspeakable experiences. And we say, look at that thing that has happened to me. That's, and we somehow equate that type of experience with power, like some visible manifestation of God's power, and that's how I'll know the power of the resurrection. Like God's almost going to have to hit me with a lightning bolt, and then I'll know the power of the resurrection. That is not what the Apostle Paul says, and I think that we have a bad definition of experience, and what does it mean to know the power of the resurrection? What does it mean to know the power of the resurrection? To know the power of the resurrection is to experience that life-giving power that Jesus affords to the believer. So every time that you say yes to what God says, that's the power of the resurrection. Every time you say no to a temptation, that's the power of the resurrection. Every time you mature and look more like Jesus, that's the power of the resurrection. That's what it looks like. When you love your neighbor, that's the power of the resurrection. So when the Apostle Paul says, I want to know this, what does it mean? It means he wants more power. He wants to live completely dedicated to the Lord. He wants to live in that power. He wants to experience that power. He wants to know that life-giving power that Jesus gives and rely on that power more and more and more. Now, there's another implication of this, and it's kind of exciting for me. When you think about to know the power of the resurrection, could we actually even separate this from one day the believer will be resurrected? Someday, we are going to know that power, those of us who believe. We're going to know what it's like to be dead and then bodily resurrected because of Jesus. Now, do not get me wrong. I do, I'm not trying to say that the only reason that we should learn about the resurrection is because of some great spiritual metaphor. That's not what's happening here. The, the resurrection is a historical fact. And once again, if we probably polled everybody as they walked in, and I'd say, is the, in your mind, is the resurrection more historical than the presidency of George Washington? I imagine that all the believers would resoundingly say, of course. Of course, I have more doubts about the presidency of George Washington than I do about the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's an important event. But we're not here for history class the, the, the resurrection is so important is because we live in that power and because of the resurrection, I have life. The very life that I'm living now is because of that event. Jesus rose from the dead. And when he rose from the dead, it vindicated what he did on the cross. And by vindicating what he did on the cross, that means that I am forgiven and at one with God. It also means... That every moment, I now have this newness of life. And in this newness of life, I can say yes to what is right, no to what is wrong. And I can now glorify my Savior. I can now be thankful 
Every time I glorify God and I'm thankful, that is the power of the resurrection. And as believers, we should desire to know that power more. Notice what Paul says next. He says, and the fellowship of his suffering being conformed to his death. Pregnant term once again. On the one hand, this means that Paul wants to be just like Jesus. What did Jesus do? Jesus was sold out to the will of God. He completely was obedient to the will of God. He was obedient to the will of God to the point of death. Paul says, that's how I want to be. I want to be like Jesus. I want to be that obedient to the point of death. The apostle Paul realizes and takes the words of Jesus serious. So that when Jesus says, if they persecuted me, the master, do you not think that they will not persecute the servants? And so the apostle Paul realizes that to be like Christ means you have to be like Christ. And if Christ suffered and was persecuted, then we will too. And to the Apostle Paul, that is not something to be avoided. I don't think this is something that he's like excited about. I don't think he's a masochist, that he just enjoys pain. But I think he realizes, I want to suffer for the sake of Christ. I want to share in that. I want to know what it's like to be like Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Credible truth, right? Credible truth. Something that we as believers should all strive for. But there's one more gem in this treasure chest. It's found in verse 11. He says, In order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, let me just say this about this translation. I actually think this is a good translation, and it's also a very confusing translation. Paul's statement here, if you read it without any context of the rest of the Bible... You may read this as if the Apostle Paul is saying, ah, I might, res- I might be resurrected from the dead. I might not be, right? Like I'm in Christ and I'm doing all this. Hopefully, fingers crossed, right? I'm going to be resurrected. If you have no context of the Apostle Paul, no context of the rest of the scripture, you might be able to read that. That is not what the Apostle Paul means. In fact, it would be the most, that would, to me, that would be the craziest logical conclusion of what he just said right i want to be in christ and christ is the great treasure and earlier in the book he says for me to live is christ and to die is gain only to have the conclusion maybe (laughs) so what does the apostle paul mean here so he says in order notice in verse 11 in order that i may attain it it may be maybe better to translate this as I don't know how, right? So, so that I don't know how attain the resurrection from the dead. Meaning this, the Apostle Paul does not know from the time of his writing of the letter to the Philippians to the point of his death what's going to occur. He doesn't know. He doesn't know those events. He doesn't know how that's going to transpire. He doesn't know whether he's going to live and he's going to be raptured He doesn't know whether he's going to be killed. He doesn't know. That that part is unknowable. So there's that part where he says, I don't know. So that, I don't know, but 
I don't know when, but I will attain the resurrection. So what I think the Apostle Paul is saying is here, it's kind of confusing. Is he saying that he doesn't know the future events from the time of his writing to the time of the resurrection. He doesn't know that. But he does know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he will be resurrected. That's what I think the Apostle Paul is saying. Now, this goes along in line with the letter. If you read the book of Philippians, specifically in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul says the same thing. He says, look, I don't know which way to ask you to pray for me. I don't know if you to pray that I die and go home to be with the Lord or pray that I'm rescued and I stay here. Both have good benefits, right? If I, if I die, Jesus, right? And if I stay here, well, then I, I get to minister to you, to you. And he says, and I don't know which to, to pick. I'm hard-pressed on which way. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen here. So, so just pray that God's will be done. And I think this is in the apostle's mind as he's sitting in a prison cell writing this letter to a church who's having some problems, he's saying, look, I don't know the future on this side of glory, but I do know what's on the other side of glory, that I will be like Jesus. What a hope we have as believers. This past year has been a really tough year for a lot of us, and many of us have lost loved ones friends, family. We've lost some dear brothers and sisters in the Lord. I remember at my grandfather's funeral, I I had the opportunity to give one of the eulogies. And uh, the thought that hit me was, I'm really jealous of my grandfather. He no longer has to walk by faith. He now walks in a fulfilled promise. He, that, that, that thing that I have, which is hope, He no longer hopes. It's a reality for him. I hope. I walk by faith. I struggle. I doubt. Him, no more. He is in the presence of Jesus. He is sanctified completely. He is glorified. There is no walking by faith. Jesus is there. The reality is in front of him. What an incredible hope we have. Someday, I will be like my grandfather in the aspect of I will no longer walk by faith. I will no longer have hope because Jesus is in front of me and the reality of my salvation is right there. And that hope that I have on this side is invaluable. I would give, gladly give up everything to have this hope. This is the treasure. So when we think about some of those people who consider themselves Christians and go to church and they look at Christianity and they say, well, the treasure is found in this self-righteousness. This treasure is found in this ritual. The treasure is found in this tradition. The treasure is found in this. The treasure is found in this, in my obedience, in this. This is the treasure. This is the great, this is the great hope that I have is this, this obedience, this action, this thought, this credential. What a sad existence. That's not the treasure. That's the false treasure. The real treasure is Jesus. The real hope is Jesus. Knowing Jesus is the treasure. The point of the resurrection 
is to know Jesus. The point of the resurrection is to be identified with Jesus. The point of the resurrection is to have hope in Jesus. And that is the treasure. Now, we would all agree with that. The rub for us is not knowing the treasure, but desiring the treasure. And as we saw in this text, what kills our desire to pursue Jesus Christ? It is that attempt to establish our own righteousness apart from the gifts that the Lord gives us, namely the Holy Spirit and his word. Friends, may we avoid this temptation and may the Lord help us see him as the treasure. And may we not value our credentials, our history, our past, our acts of past righteousness and acts of past times that we didn't fall into a temptation. That doesn't mean a thing. What really matters is knowing Jesus. What really matters is to continue to know Jesus and to have hope in him to know that his fate is my fate. May the Lord give us both the will and the ability to do all that we heard today. Let's pray.